Well, good morning on this 4th of July weekend. Um, I picked the only shirt that kind of had red, white, and blue, but then I, I kind of looked at it and it looks kind of like a tablecloth for a picnic, so, um, which I guess is appropriate too for the weekend. So I hope you um, are enjoying this holiday weekend and taking time to, um, to express gratitude to God for the freedoms that, that you experience um, in this nation that we have. What makes a pizza a pizza? I mean, if you were to order a pizza supreme with all the toppings, and then you were to take off the pineapple, which arguably shouldn't be there in the first place, but <laughs> would it still be a pizza without the pineapple? Or if you were to take off the pepperoni, would the pizza still be a pizza? I heard a no back there. Uh, do certain toppings make a pizza a pizza? Or is it the sauce? Or is it the cheese? Or is it the crust? What actually makes a pizza what it is? This is actually a very ancient philosophical debate that goes all the way back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle 300 years before the birth of Jesus. N not that Aristotle was philosophizing about pizzas back then, but Aristotle wrestled with the question of what makes certain objects exactly what they are. And Aristotle suggested that every object, like a pizza or a chair or a person or whatever, has certain essential properties that make that object exactly what it is. And objects' essential properties are those characteristics that if you were to, to take one or more of those characteristics away, that object would cease being what it was. What makes a chair a chair? Or a pizza a pizza? Or person, a person. Well, with that idea in mind, let me ask another question. What makes a Christian a Christian? Using Aristotle's categories, what are the essential properties that make one a Christian? Well, well the obvious answer is that faith in Jesus is an essential property that makes a person a Christian. It's impossible to be a Christian without believing in Jesus, having faith in Jesus. But there's another essential property that makes a Christian a Christian that we don't talk about a lot and that may surprise you. And that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Spirit is part of what makes a Christian a Christian. And that's what I want to talk about with you this morning. Now, we're in a series called Life in the Spirit. And in this series, we've been going through the eighth chapter of the book of Romans in the New Testament to learn more about the Holy Spirit and his work in our lives. And today, we're going to see that the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is an essential attribute of being a follower of Jesus. The, the Holy Spirit is not like a pineapple topping on a pizza, one of those toppings for a select and narrow group of people who happen to like that sort of thing. <laughs> the presence of the Holy Spirit is essential. And today, from Romans chapter 8, Verses 9 through 17, we're going to see three reasons why that is. And so I want to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word today from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. This is the Word of the Lord for us this morning. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, 
if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You can be seated. Notice how often Paul mentions the Spirit in these eight verses. By my count in my English translation, 11 different times. Several times just the Spirit. The Spirit of God in verse 9 and again in verse 14. The Spirit of Christ in verse 9. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead in verse 11, and the Spirit Himself in verse 16. And notice the verbs associated with the Spirit in these verses. The Spirit lives in you in verse 9 and again in verse 11. The Spirit gives life in verse 10. The Spirit brought about your adoption in verse 15. And the Spirit testifies. In verse 16, this passage is literally saturated with the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 focuses on the Spirit living in us, what we call the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling. When all of us are born, this verse 9 says that, that we're born into what Paul describes as the realm of the flesh. And the realm of the flesh, I've defined it in this series before, um, is human nature as it exists apart from God's saving grace. The realm of the flesh is the entire human race in its fallen, rebellious, sinful condition that all of us are born into. Being in the realm of the flesh means that the power of sin has found a home inside of us like a virus, and we live under sin's condemnation and judgment. But when we trust in Jesus, we're transferred to a new realm, what Paul here calls the realm of the Spirit. We're not in the realm of the Spirit unless the Spirit of God lives in us. That's the qualification in verse 9. 
We're in the realm of the Spirit if indeed the Spirit of God is living in us. Bible scholar N.T. Wright says that Paul's idea of the indwelling of the Spirit in his letters comes from the stories of the Old Testament about God's glory filling God's temple. Just as the glory of God, the visible manifested presence of God filled the Jewish temple, now through Jesus, that same glory fills us through the work of the, and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Through Jesus, we are God's temple now, both individual Christians and collectively as the church. God's Spirit lives inside every individual Christian, and God's Spirit lives among us as a congregation. Verse 9 is the closest the Apostle Paul ever gets to defining what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who's indwelt by the Spirit. If a person doesn't have the Spirit living in them, that person does not yet belong to Jesus. Or as a Bible teacher John Stott used to say, you are in the Spirit if the Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit's indwelling proves the authenticity of our faith. This indwelling of the Spirit, the Spirit living in us, proves the authenticity of our faith. See, the Spirit doesn't only live in certain Christians, in pastors or missionaries, in saints or martyrs. The indwelling of the Spirit is not like a pineapple topping on a pizza. To use Aristotle's language, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is essential to being a Christian. Every true follower of Jesus is indwelt by the Spirit. The moment a person placed their trusts in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and makes his home inside of that person. And there may be many later fillings and experiences and anointings from that Spirit, but the Spirit lives within us at the moment of our conversion, proving the authenticity of our faith. Well, the verse 9 focuses on the indwelling of the Spirit. Verses 10 through 13 focus on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's empowerment. In verses 10 through 13, Paul pictures the entire Christian life from beginning to end, from start to finish. Right now, even though we live in the realm of the Spirit and the Spirit indwells us, lives in us, our bodies are still subject to death. This is because each one of us was born in the realm of the flesh. So our physical bodies are mortal. And mortal bodies are susceptible to things like sickness and injuries, the aging process, and ultimately to death. We break bones and we pull muscles. Over time, we develop cataracts and we lose our muscle tone. The older I get, the longer it takes me to bounce back from those little injuries that I bounced back from quickly when I was younger. And eventually, our bodies wear out and die. But even though our bodies are mortal, once we're in the realm of the Spirit and the Spirit lives in us, the Spirit infuses us within with eternal life. And so as our bodies grow weaker and weaker, closer and closer to our death, our inner self through the Spirit is being renewed and made more and more fully alive as the Spirit works within us. And I've seen this firsthand when I've been with people who've walked with Jesus for many years at their deathbed. 
People whose bodies are nearing the end and are moments away from finally giving out. And yet people who are brimming with life because of a lifetime of the work of the Spirit within them. But Paul also reassures us in these verses that the same Spirit who raised Jesus' body from the dead will one day give life not only to our inner self, but also, also to our physical mortal bodies. Even though our bodies are mortal, they're not a hopeless cause. Our physical bodies are not something to be disregarded like some of the Greek philosophers believed. Our bodies are redeemable, savable, even in their present weakened mortal condition. But the pathway to that salvation, the pathway to that redemption goes through death and ultimately to resurrection. The Holy Spirit's presence within us guarantees this future resurrection that just as surely as the Spirit raised Jesus' body from the dead, the Spirit living in us is assurance and a guarantee He will raise our bodies from the dead after our body dies. See, Paul is picturing the Christian life from beginning to end here. The empowerment of the Spirit. And the Spirit's empowerment in us now as we live in these mortal bodies, creates an obligation for us to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. To live according to the Spirit instead of according to the flesh. Because even though Christians are no longer in the realm of the flesh, verse 9, sometimes we still live as if we were. We're like slaves who've been liberated but who keep reverting back to slave-like behavior our transfer into the realm of the spirit out of the realm of the flesh does not erase all those thought patterns and, and um, behaviors and ingrained habits that we learn from the realm of the flesh. As so verse 12, Paul tells us that we have an obligation to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, that this obligation to our old way of life has been broken. We now have an obligation to the spirit. Now, we don't like the word obligation much these days. I mean, an obligation sounds like something we do because we have to do it, not because we want to do it. Um, and the Greek word Paul uses in verse 12 can refer to that kind of obligation, like a debt that you're obligated to pay off. I don't get very excited when it comes time to pay my bills and I'm paying off my credit card death, debt. It's, it's an obligation. But the Greek word Paul uses here can also sometimes be used to describe keeping the promises a person makes when they enter into a covenant relationship. See, in a covenant relationship, both parties of that covenant make promises to each other to live in certain ways in relationship to each other. For example, at weddings, husbands and wives pledge vows to each other, obligating themselves to live in certain ways in relationship towards each other within the covenant of marriage. I think that's how Paul's using this word obligation in verse 12. When we trust in Jesus and when we receive the gift of the Spirit, we enter into a covenant relationship with God. And God promises to forgive all of our sins. 
to adopt us as his children, to one day raise our bodies from the dead, and, and numerous, numerous other promises that God obligates himself to keep as part of this covenant. But in this covenant, we promise to follow Jesus, to trust in him, to make him the Lord over everything in our lives. We obligate ourselves to our promises because that's how covenant relationships work. And in our covenant with God, our promises obligate us to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Because our bodies are still mortal in this fallen mortal condition until our death and resurrection, our bodies are, are subject to passions and desires and inclinations that sometimes lead us away from our relationship with God. There's a line in our essential tenets of our denomination, of our eco-Presbyterian church, and it goes like this. That since the entrance of sin into our world, our desires are no longer trustworthy guides to goodness. And what seems natural to us no longer corresponds to God's design. That is true of each and every one of us. And if we let them, our, our bodily passions and desires and inclinations will rule over our lives in such a way that they will draw us away from our promises to God in this covenant relationship. And this is why we have an obligation to put to death the misdeeds of the body. See, the Spirit's empowerment propels our spiritual formation. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit propels us in our formation as followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is like a, a life-giving transfusion that gives us life where there was no life before. The Spirit is the one who helps us keep our covenant promises to God. The Spirit is the one who empowers us to keep our, our, our desires and passions and inclinations in check. Doesn't erase them, but to keep them from leading us away from our relationship with God. Now, let me define spiritual formation for you, because that may be a phrase that may be unfamiliar to some of you. Spiritual formation is simply the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ for the sake of others. I, I love this very simple definition from Robert Mulholland's book, uh, Invitation to a Journey. Spiritual formation is a process. It's a lifelong journey. It's not an event where you suddenly arrive and go, oh, I'm spiritually formed. It's a process where over time, a person becomes more and more like Jesus, more and more reflecting his character, obedient to his teachings, committed to his values, loyal to his kingdom. And this lifelong journey, this lifelong process is not just for our own sake so we can huddle in our churches and congratulate each other on how spiritually formed each of us is becoming. No, it's for the sake of the world, for the sake of other people. More now than ever, our world desperately needs Christians who are becoming more like Jesus in their lives. Because God knows that there are a lot of people who say they're Christians, but who don't look much like Jesus at all. And they seem to get all the press these days. And one aspect of this spiritual formation process is learning to put to death the misdeeds of the body. And we do this through consistent, 
practice of spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines like daily prayer, consistent solitude, regular confession of our sins, humble service to other people, learning to really listen to each other, reading and studying the Bible. As the Spirit empowers us in the consistent practice of these spiritual disciplines, we learn to keep our passions and desires and inclinations in check so they don't rule over us and lead us away from our covenant promises to God. The Spirit empowers us in our spiritual formation. Finally, verses 14 through 17 of the verses that we read focus on the Holy Spirit's assurance, the assurance of the Holy Spirit. Being indwelt by the Spirit and being empowered by the Spirit also means being led by the Spirit. And those who are led by the Spirit have assurance from the Spirit. Now, the Spirit's leading does not imply force or coercion. The Holy Spirit will not force you to do anything. When I first got my dog, Emma, as a puppy a year and a half ago, she would constantly pull on the leash when I put her on walks. In fact, one of our covenant partners said, hey, pastor, I saw your dog walking you in downtown Glendora the other day. And he wasn't wrong. But now that she's a year and a half old, she's learning not to pull, but how to keep in step with me, how to, how to follow my lead, at least about half the time. Being led by the Spirit means learning to keep in step with the Spirit's leading. Because the Spirit won't yank us or pull us. Those who are led by the Spirit are assured that they are part of God's family. Those who are led by the Spirit are assured that they are God's daughters and sons. And in a healthy, loving family, children don't need to live in fear. Paul uses the image of adoption in these verses, that the Spirit has brought about our adoption into the family of God. God's family, a family that in the Old Testament was restricted to the nation of Israel alone, has now been opened to anyone who trusts in Jesus, can be part of that family. And in this family, God is our father. Jesus is our older brother. And the Spirit is the one who makes this adoption take place. I have a friend named Donna who grew up in the foster care system. And, and foster care is a wonderful way to help kids in bad situations. I know some of you have served as foster parents and right now serve as foster parents. But the foster care system can be hard for kids. And growing up, my friend Donna was placed with several different families and she was always wondering when, when the social worker would show up and she'd get the talk that she was being taken out of that family and moved to another one. She lived in a constant state of fear about the future without any sense of stability or predictability about the future until one of her foster families adopted her. And that changed everything. Donna's in her 70s now. And she still points to that family's decision to adopt her as the turning point in her life because her fears and insecurities were replaced by stability 
that put those fears to rest. God has adopted us into his family through his spirit. And if we're adopted through the spirit, we can address God as Abba Father. Now, Abba doesn't have anything to do with the Swedish pop band who wrote Dancing Queen, in case you were wondering. Abba is actually an Aramaic word that was a term of endearment that a young child would use for his or her father. Jesus often addressed his father as Abba in his prayer life. And as God's adopted children, we're invited to address God the same way Jesus did. But there's more. The Spirit not only enables us to call God our Abba, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we really are adopted as God's children. When I was 21 years old, I was at a laundromat across the street from the Montclair Mall. And as I was taking my clothes out of the washer and putting it in the dryer, this guy holding a gun and a paper bag ran into the laundromat. He had just robbed the bank next door to the laundromat. And as we made eye contact in my peripheral vision, I could see police cars pulling up. And he pointed the gun at me and he said, come here. And in that moment, I knew that he wanted to take me as a hostage to try to get out of a situation. And in that split moment, Romans 8, 16 came to mind. God's spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And in that moment, my heart was flooded with assurance that I really was God's child, loved by him, protected by him, safe in his loving arms. So I ignored the guy and went back to doing my laundry. And convinced I was crazy, he ran out of the laundromat, was eventually apprehended by the police. In God's household, we are not slaves. We are God's beloved adopted children. And verse 17 is really the clincher here, that if we're children in God's family, that means we're also heirs and heiresses. We have an inheritance. The Father has written us into the will. Pastor Fleming Rutledge in her sermon on this passage says that a person who knows that they have an inheritance, an heir or an heiress, lives differently than those who don't. They live with a sense of freedom, with, with uh, uh, reason to be less anxious, less constricted, more confident, more able to take risks because they know what's waiting for them. Because of our adoption, we're heirs. The Spirit's assurance frees us from our fearful insecurity. The Spirit's assurance frees us. The Spirit assures us that we really are God's sons and daughters, not foster kids, not, not temporary guests on a sleepover, not orphans, not slaves, but full sons and daughters. The Spirit makes it happen, and the Spirit confirms it within our own hearts. And our status as God's children qualifies us as heirs and heiresses written into the will with an inheritance waiting for us. We don't have to live in fearful insecurity. The Spirit's assurance puts our insecure fears to rest. So what makes a Christian a Christian? Faith in Jesus, yes, that's essential. But also the presence of the Spirit the Holy Spirit is not like an optional topping on a pizza reserved for a select handful of people who are into that sort of thing. The Holy Spirit is for every follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is for you and for me. 
The Spirit's indwelling proves the authenticity of our faith. The, the Spirit's empowerment propels us forward in our formation as Christians, and the Spirit's assurance frees us from fearful insecurities. So since we're in the realm of the Spirit, Glenn Kirk, let's learn to live according to the Spirit as God's sons and daughters who are indwelt, empowered, and assured because the Spirit lives in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful words of Scripture and the many, many truths that they unfold before us. Father, thank you that we are no longer slaves who live in fear, but that you have made us your daughters and sons, part of your family. And as we prepare our hearts to receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, may the bread and the cup remind us of that assurance. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.